morning, everyone. How are you all? Great. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Acts 3. Scroll to Acts 3. I don't know, whatever you do with your Bible. But uh, Acts chapter 3, I'm going to read the whole, uh, the whole chapter. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to read up to verse uh, 21. And then I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to dip over to chapter 4, just read the first four verses there. And that's our, our text today. Um, we are in this series uh, in the book of Acts. We're going to go through it all year. We'll be taking little uh, like stops and breaks throughout the year to talk about other things. But for the most part, we're here to look at what the, what the, what, like, how the church began and then what the Spirit did to this church and how this church was empowered. So uh, allow me to just... Begin to read, and then I'll, and I'll pray. Uh, verse 1, Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter, looking straight at him, as did John, then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong and he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them to the end of the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if our own power or godliness made this, man, uh, made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord." And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Verse 1 in chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, 
So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray that your joy would begin to be released in this church. Specifically this church, specifically this gathering, that the joy of the Lord would begin to be released. That we would, as a church, be freed from the things that keep us lame and bound and outside. And that you would free us to a place where we could, alongside this man, walk and jump and praise you. I pray for the the parts of our lives that are reserved, that are held off from you, God, would be exposed gently by your spirit. And that, God, we would be given, your church would be given a mouth to praise you. That is the most attractive thing when someone walks up to us and says, you have to watch this movie or you have to watch this thing or you have to see this thing or you have to taste this thing. When we're genuinely excited about something, that is so contagious. I pray, God, that there is nothing more beautiful and satisfying and refreshing than Jesus Christ in the presence you bring. Unleash that now. In Jesus' name, amen. On uh, Valentine's Day, um, a few weeks ago, my wife and I had a little date where we put our daughter to bed early and um, we, we ran into the living room and we started a fire and we watched a movie. And Watching movies is something that we never, ever get to do anymore. So we have this like list of movies that we've been wanting to see. And the very top of the list, we finally got to watch the movie Parasite. That one best picture, if you've seen this movie. Um, yeah, people are clapping. Wow, cool. Good. Joy is already happening, guys. The prayer is working. <laughs> there is this moment in the movie, if you've ever seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where the kind of movie turns and Ash turns to me completely surprised and says, wait, this is a horror movie? And I was like, yes, it's called Parasite. Like, what did you think this was? And stop talking in the movie. This is like the best part. Stop talking. Now, what this movie does extremely well, and what all really good movies and jokes do and stories do well, is it has a good setup. A setup in a story or a joke is that element in the plot as the story is developing that sets you up for something useful later in the story. And if it's done really well, there's an element of a wonderful surprise or a shocking twist. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. It was a setup that was clued to you earlier in the, in the, in the plot, earlier in the story. Now, if you miss the setup, you'll miss what the storyteller is really trying to do. Like if you watch Parasite and you miss the fact that, that the movie opens with a poor family living underground, which is a great setup, I won't give anything else away, <laughs> you're going to miss an important element to be revealed later. If you miss that Luke Skywalker was a bored normal person at the beginning of A New Hope who really longs for adventure, who longs to be a pilot in the Rebel Alliance, you're going to miss the significance of the adventure that is about to unfold. You're going to miss the joy and the fear that's found in his face when he's in way over his head. See, the setup is the key to storytelling. And if you don't get the setup right, the story will fall flat. Or if you don't pay attention to the setup, the story will fall flat. The setup in Acts chapter 3 comes in Acts chapter 2 at the end. The setup was that the church were all together and they were devoted to one another. That they were devoted to uh, a learning together and, and fellowship and, and breaking bread. And they were devoted to prayer. And the setup comes in verse 25 of chapter 2 where it says, 
the church sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's the setup. The disciples had no money because they were generous. They gave it all away to those in the community. And the disciples met every single day in the temple. So they would make the trek up the hill to the temple mount and they would go into the temple to pray. And that is, with that background, as the church was living this way, God was adding to the church those who were being saved. That's the setup. And it allows us to find Peter and John at the beginning of chapter 3 going up to the temple to pray because that's what they do. And as they walk up to the temple to pray, they encountered a man. They encountered a man who has carried around a wound since he was born. He couldn't walk. And not only has he carried this wound, as a result, he himself had to be carried every day and set outside the temple so he can ask for money. Now, because this is such an extreme example of need, he's lame, he can't walk, he has to be carried, he's set outside, he begs for money. Because that's such an extreme example of need, many of us don't read ourselves into this story. We don't recognize the wounds that we've been carrying around since birth. Since childhood, the wounds that have made it to where we ourselves have to be carried by others, by handouts, whether it's physical or even emotional. How we carry wounds like this all the time that make us codependent, addicted, shallow, afraid of getting close, a fear of commitment, maybe even broke. Wounds that we have that, that have made us relationally lame and emotionally immobile. And our own wounds leave us in the same place that this lame man found himself every single day outside. See, the placement of this man is meant to tell us something about him. He was outside the temple, not inside the temple. He begged for money from, for those that were going inside, but he himself was out. He was excluded from the joy and the blessing that was going on inside the temple. Oftentimes, our own wounds leave us outside. For whatever reason, our wounds leave us outside of the presence of God and outside of true fellowship outside of intimacy, outside of wholeness, where we cover up, we mask, we hide from people. And our wounds that were given to us, that were probably even passed along to us, keep us excluded. The way this text is describing this man is by telling us that he is someone who is in desperate need of a savior. He cannot walk he cannot provide for himself. He cannot provide for his family. He can't even get to the temple. Someone has to carry him there every single day. This man is in desperate need of a savior. But here's the thing. This man is all of us. See, every single one of us have a wound that we've been carrying around since birth. Something we can't overcome. Something we have just lived with and made a way to get through life with. And not to sound overly preachy too so soon in this sermon because it's going there really fast. But the Bible calls this wound that we are all born with sin. That sin gets passed on to us along with our eye color and blood type. And the wound of sin manifests itself in our lives in different ways. 
And I'm not talking here about karma. I'm not talking about how you were born with something that your parents had and because of their sin it gets passed on to you or because of your sin in a past life or something it gets passed on to you until you get it right. Jesus, and that, that myth, by the way, was around when the disciples were there. Actually, there's a famous healing story where the disciples asked Jesus, was it his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? So it's like basically the workings of karma. And Jesus said, neither. This man was, is like this so that God can manifest his glory through him and Jesus heals him. So I'm not talking about karma I'm saying that we are all born into this human condition that manifests itself in things like lame feet and blind eyes. And most acutely, as one of my favorite writers says, we are all born with a human propensity to F things up. All of us are. And by things, relationships, jobs, money, sex, everything. We have a propensity to F up everything. And this human condition causes us a lameness, a separation, a codependency that all the money in the world cannot fix. See, what this man represents is all of us until we encounter the power of God through Jesus Christ. When Peter and John were about to enter into the temple to pray, the man, begging without looking at them, asks them for money. He asks them for alms. Now, this is a, um, this is a thing that, that, that was very common in Jewish culture. It's actually very common today where uh, people who are poor and in need, they, they, they stand in the way of people going to somewhere religious. And of course, as you're going, you give alms to the poor. I think it's actually a wonderful practice, something that we should be practicing as well, that we can practice as well. Jesus doesn't remove that from us. Um, when he, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and when you do it, assuming that we will give alms to the poor, when you do it, make sure that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand are doing or don't do it for applause, okay? So he's not talking about, the, the, the point of the story is that this, this man shouldn't be begging for alms. But what we know from the setup here is this. Here's the setup. Here's the part where this is the good, the good um, turn here in the story. The setup is these disciples are asked for money, but they have no money. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit, they have given their money away to those in their church who have need. So they, they say, can I have money? Alms for the poor, money for the poor. Can you give money? And they don't have any money. That's a setup. But here is a man in need. Disciples are generous people. What do they do? The first thing they do is they look at him, which is, again, an amazing practice. To look, to look at them in the eyes. To walk by people in our on our streets that live on our streets and not to look at them in the eyes is to dehumanize them. They look at him in the eyes. They both do. Verse 5, Peter looks straight at him as did John. The next thing they do is they tell the man, look at us. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention expecting to get something from them. John, who was um, Peter's friend here, they're both that John mentioned here in the story, would go on later to write a few letters to the church. One of them we have is called 1 John. Pretty creative, right? 1 John, in that letter, this is what John, the guy who's there, right there next to Peter, 
says in 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, the implication and meaning of this text is that no one has ever seen God, but when the church loves one another well, like Jesus taught us, God is made visible through his church. When we love each other well, the unseen God is made visible through us. So when they say, look at us, what they are saying is, look at us as we show you what Jesus is like. When they said, look at us, they were doing something far more than turning the beggar's attention from their wallet to their face. Peter was commanding that this man gaze at him and John because they were a part of the new face of Jesus on earth. Look at us as we reflect to you what Jesus is like. They were a part of Jesus' body, the church, and to encounter them was to encounter the risen Christ. This is the way Jesus Christ, in his insane plan of how his life and ministry would be carried on, designed it. That he appointed us as his witnesses, that he said, I'll be with you always, that he lives inside of us, that we would represent Jesus Christ. The church are to be the hands and the feet and the face and the mouth and the eyes of Jesus on earth, made possible only by the Spirit. So they say to this, this begging man, look at us. And this phrase has honestly haunted me. Look at us. Can I say that? Can we say that? Can you say that? Can we say, can we say that as a church? Can we say to San Francisco, look at us. And when you do, when you look into our search history and our online bank statements and our conversations and how we talk to each other and how we treat each other, you will see the face of Christ. See, that's, that's haunting. That phrase is haunting. That thought is haunting. That we can turn to people and say, look at us. Aristides of Athens in the first century gives this explanation for why he and so many others were converted to following Christ in a, at that time a world where Christians were literally being killed and hunted. And this is what he says. He says in AD 25, he says, they walk in all humility and kindness. Falsehood is not found among them and they love one another. They do not despise the widow or grieve the orphan he that has distributes liberally to him who has not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. For they call themselves brothers, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world and one of them sees him, he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a ma any man who is poor and needy, and they have not the abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days so that they may supply the needy with the food they need. And they observe scrupulously the commands of their Messiah. My gosh. Authentic Christianity is compelling and convincing no matter what century you live in. 
Because what we're saying is that we corporately are to, are to look like Christ. That the church is to be Christ on earth. So, San Francisco, look at us. Look at how we as a church care for each other and how we see it that our duty is to care for the weakest among us. Look at how we look for ways to sow peace and restoration into our city. Look at how we don't despise the poor among us in our city, but we care and advocate for them. Look, San Francisco, as we, Jesus' church, are his face in this city. See, that's what I want to say. And I say, may it be, Lord. May this year, as we are focused on a study in Acts, and as we focus our efforts of, of bringing renewal in our city, may it be that we can say to San Francisco, look at us. So the man looks up at him, at both of them, expecting to get some coins or maybe even a buck. But what he gets instead is that very famous phrase. They look at him and say, silver or gold, I have not. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> Spare change, I have not. But what I do have, I give to you. In Jesus' name, stand up and give me a hug. In Jesus' name, here's my jacket. Or, in Jesus' name, walk. But here's the question. What do they have? I mean, we all know what they don't have. They don't have silver. They don't have gold. They don't have a professional religious education. They don't have a great strategy with a slide deck on how they intend to reach all nations. We know what they don't have. But what do they have? That's the way the text tees this up, sets this thing up. We don't have money, but what we do have, we give to you. Well, what do you have? Jesus, right before he was about to depart and leave the disciples to the mission he started, says in Matthew chapter 28, he says to his disciples right before his ascension, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. See, what happened when Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again was what Paul, what, what happened there is what Paul called the disarming of authorities. The Apostle Paul would later on say in Colossians 2.15 that what happened actually when Jesus was dying on the cross for our sins, that he was disarming the principalities and the powers. He was disarming the authorities. Look at Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authority, he, Christ, made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So what Paul does as he reflects on the the the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus as he reflects theologically on what happens is what is going on there actually what happens is Satan all of humanity both uh, Rome and 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 the Jewish people together pointed hatred towards the son of God who gave himself for them they crucified him uh, Judas betrayed him. All of these things going to Jesus. Jesus absorbed all of their hate and all of their anger and all of their division. He took it on and then died and then rose again, breaking its power. And then Jesus now has authority over Satan, over sickness, over death. Through Christ's death and resurrection, he defeated, disarmed, and defamed the powers and authorities that keep us lame and immobile and wounded. This is what 
Paul says that Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. And what Jesus does when he, when he resurrects from the grave and he gets all his disciples around, he says, all the authority has now been given to me. I've taken it back. It was given over to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, but now I've taken it back. All authority has been given to me, therefore go. Which, what, the implication there is this. What the Great Commission is, is that all authority has been given to Jesus, therefore go in my authority. Because I have authority, you have authority. So back to the question. What do they have? They don't have money, but what do they have? They have something that money can't buy. True authority. Peter turns to the beggar and gives him what he does have, the ability to rule over Satan and the powers that keep us bound. That's what Peter has. I have the authority that comes from Christ. And I will say, not only does Peter have it, you and I have it if you are a follower of Jesus. You have this authority. We have this authority. And so Peter says, I give you what I have from Christ. And then he proclaims the name by which the power comes from. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. The name of, Je that's who has the authority. Jesus, I have this authority because of Christ. Walk. And then they grab him by the right hand, which at that moment has to be pretty risky for this man lying by the gate asking for money. It had to be pretty risky to reach your hand out and show that you indeed wanted to be made well. See, there's a lot of us and there's a lot of people that don't necessarily want to be made well. They want to bump. They want to hit. They want the thing that gets them through the next week, the next three months, the next year. They need a financial hit. They need an emotional hit. They need a sexual encounter. They're not looking for healing. They're looking for a quick little bump. This man there begging could have easily said, I actually don't want to walk. Just give me some cash. Go borrow it. Go Venmo me, whatever. Give me some cash. But he doesn't. He reaches out his hand and takes their hand. He doesn't want just a handout. He doesn't want a, a hit to get him through the day. He wants healing. And instantly he puts pressure on his legs and his ankles and feet become strong. And he begins to jump and walk. And here's the question. Where does he walk? Right into the temple. He goes right, he stands up, he starts showing me, oh my God, and he goes right into the temple. The place that he stood outside of his entire life. Now, there is no Old Testament passage saying that this man couldn't go into the temple because of his condition. However, lame animals couldn't be sacrificed in the temple and lame or crippled priests couldn't serve in the temple. So it's not hard to see how culturally there could be a bound, boundary markers that would keep this man from entering the temple as a crippled person. This is how cultural boundaries work. My wife loves walking around our neighborhood and talking to uh, people that live on the street. She does that with... Um, she walks around with Prince, our dog, and Juniper, our daughter, and pushes them and, like, loves conversing and talking with people in our neighborhood that live on the streets. And when the conversation uh, gets going and, and it's about to end, she'll often ask, is there anything that we can do for you today? 
And sometimes people say, you know, spare change would be great. Sometimes people say, no, this, actually this conversation is what I need. Just the fact that you let me touch your puppy and like say hi to your daughter, that was enough. Thank you. There's one person that Ash is really, really fond of that, that the first time she asked this question, he said, um, I like powdered donuts and an orange Fanta. <laughs> this, is, this is my guy. This is my guy. <laughs> and Ash is like, awesome. You, let's go to the store right here and let's just go in and point it. I don't know where they're at in the store because I, I don't eat that stuff. My husband is, but I don't really know. Um, <laughs> you could you just point it out. And he said, oh, no, no, I, I, can't, I, I can't go in there. Like, why not? Well, they don't like when I, they don't like when I go in there. Now, is it a rule that those who live on the streets are not allowed in stores? No, that's not a rule. Of course it's not a rule. But it is a stereotype. We know what you're in here for, and we're going to watch you like a hawk. It's not hard to see why this man who sat outside the temple and not inside the temple courts, why the prejudiced was there. Why he couldn't go inside. It's not hard to see why the first thing this man did was walk into the temple. And not just walk. Look at verse 8. When he went with them in the temple, walking and jumping and praising God. We need to bring jumping back. Not like, <laughs> not like you know, the, the cult of CrossFit kind of jumping where like I jump for my calves or whatever. Like I'm talking about like jumping because you're so full of giddy, childlike joy. Like jumping during, during worship, jumping during prayer, jumping and praying, jump, like that spring, that thing that you do when you, you can't keep yourself grounded anymore. You have to like, there's something there. My, my, my daughter can't jump yet. She can almost jump because she, she's barely walking. Uh, but when she gets excited, she dances. She like does this like sh shoulder shimmy. Like this little like, and when she eats something good, we give her something, when she likes, she's like, eats it and she like dances like uncontrollably. <laughs> or something happened and she just, and it's the cutest thing in the world. It's that thing where you're like, I can't help but be so excited. That's why I was praying that would be unlocked in our church this morning. What this text means is, and pay attention here, this is important. Not only was this man's wounds healed, not only was his feet restored, but he himself was restored to the presence of God. That's what this text is saying. He got in the temple courts with Peter and John. The very place we are told in the setup in chapter 2, where the disciples of Jesus fellowshiped every single day. They fellowshiped in the temple courts. And he was outside. And Jesus heals him and he gets inside. He's in now. And now that he's in, he clings to the disciples. And I find this so moving. When I, when I was meditating on this passage this last week, it, it actually almost brought me to tears, like my version of emotion, right? Almost tears. That's usually my version. But th look at this. Look at verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, while he just, he's in the temple and he's holding, that word in, in Greek is literally to cling. He, he clung to Peter and John as all the people were astonished. See, this man has clung to others his whole life. He clung to them when they carried him to the gate of the temple to beg. He clung, clung to them when he wanted to go to the bathroom or to eat or to wash. 
But this time he clings, not because his identity as a lame man demands that he does. He clings because his identity is changed and renewed to a disciple of Jesus. And these are now his new people. These are my people. I am with them. He was a part of them now. I'm a part of this movement. So he clings to the disciples. This is like a a beautiful picture of community. When someone who is restored from living in darkness, restored from all the emotional and even physical um, wounds that they've been living in, and Christ heals them, and they brought into our church, they just cling to the church. They cling to this new fellowship. They cling to friends. They cling here. And that should be something that we shouldn't go, no, 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 don't, don't get too clingy. Like just, you know, like email the staff. Just not, not, not now. Just. We should be like, yeah, c- come and cling. And because everyone is looking with astonishment, Peter begins to preach the second sermon of his young career. And look how it starts. Verse 12, why do you stare at us? This is great. Because remember what Peter tells a layman. Look at us. And now he tells the crowd, why are you looking at us? This is, this is actually written this way on purpose. This is, um, the, this is the non-creepy two-way glass of the church. Can we all agree that two-way glass is just creepy, right? The whole idea. That one side's a mirror, but the other side's like you can see through. Creepy. Any, any situation, creepy, okay? This is what this is, but in a very non-creepy way. Let me explain. On one side, what we are saying to, the, to San Francisco, to the world, is look at us. And as you look at us, you will, you, will, you will see the face of Christ. But then as they do, and as they see our love, they see our works, our demonstration of the kingdom, what we actually are saying is look through us to behold Christ. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. They tell the man, look at us. Behold the face of Christ. Look at the face of Christ. And they tell the crowd, don't look at us. Look through us and see. It was actually Jesus who did this. Jesus has the power. See, we have tremendous power as the people of God, but it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from us at all. I want to go back to something I said last week when I was saying that we as, um, as, as a church, we're looking back at Acts and studying it. I love our church to be thinking about recommitting the things that the, the, the first church was devoted to. Committing ourselves to learning, to, to studying um, the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the doctrines of Christ. Committing ourselves to showing up, to fellowship, to, to, to show up, to not, not to flake, to our yes being yes and our no being no. To showing up when anyone that comes into our orbit has need in the church. Committing ourselves to prayer, to praying every single day for this church, and especially the weakest among us. And saying yes, committing ourselves to saying yes to the spirit and denying the flesh. Now, I believe the alchemy of this, the alchemy of this uh, has power. This is like the, the form of the church that, that Christ poured out his fire on. So that there's this be form and fire. That's what I think is happening here. Now, but in this, we have, this is like the two sides of the Christian life. It's what we do, that we show up to God and we show up to one another, but actually it's what God does. It's look at us, but look through us. 
We need both of these things. We need to look at us. We need to look through us. We need the form of, of, of studying the scriptures and showing up for one another and prayer and saying yes to the spirit and saying, yeah, this is who we are. Look at us. And we have to say, look through us. Actually, the power doesn't come from us. It comes from God. We see both of those things at work throughout the New Testament. I work harder than any man, but it's not me working, but it's Christ working in me. This is the dual nature. It's not just one. I don't do anything. God just does everything. That's not that. We show up, but when we show up, we realize it's God's power through us that's showing up. Now, everyone looks at this, and you know, to be honest, we love a healing story. All of us love stories about healing. Healing stories preach. I love when there's a healing story. I wasn't going to pass over the story. I won't pass over many healing stories. And I just love them. They preach so well. We all love healing stories. And there are beautiful parallels from this story to the marginal communities around us in San Francisco that are among us, that are in our neighborhood, where the church, where we as a church must see these communities. Looking at them and asking these communities in all humility and Christ's power to look at us, the church. However, before we slide into sentimentality, everyone loves a healing story, but not everyone loves the claims that a story like this has on our lives. Because what this does is it launches Peter into a sermon where he proclaims the crucified Christ and it lands them in jail. The, story, the healing story doesn't land them in jail. The good works doesn't land them in jail. The preaching of Christ lands them in jail. And this is the tension that we must manage as a church. We want to be a church that does good works, good deeds, and demonstrates the kingdom of God in power. Yes and amen. And we need to proclaim the crucified Christ. No matter what that brings upon us, the shame it might bring, the, its own form of marginalization, even, um, which is pretty rare in our world, uh, in our Western world, but, be, but I think it'd be, it'll, it'll be increasingly more common is persecution. What I mean is that this healing story is followed up by a very intense sermon where Peter continued to preach the crucifixion and resurrection and lordship of Jesus. And what Peter does in the sermon, he uses this word that is very polarizing. Verse 19, Peter says, repent. Now, when I use the word repent, not many people, Christian or not Christian, are like, oh, I was waiting for this. This is so good. I can't wait for the repent thing. I love when, he, when, when the pastor talks about repenting. Like, it's not a popular word in, in the church or out of the church. So, there it is. But this is what Peter says. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped, wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, do you know the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Synoptic Gospels? Like the first word he, he used in the Synoptic Gospel, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first word that Jesus uses is metanoia. Jesus begins his ministry with these words, metanoia and believe the good news. Repent, which is the Greek word for metanoia, and believe the good news. The late Henry Nouwen, that very famous spiritual writer, and he was a professor at both Yale and Harvard, said once that we can go through life with two fundamental postures. We can go through life in paranoia or metanoia. We can go through life and all of our lives are in, spent in a posture of paranoia, which is symbolized by a closed fist 
no matter what, which way you hold the fist, a protective stance, a habitual suspicion and distrust. Paranoia makes us feel that we forever need to protect ourselves from unfairness, that others will hurt us if we show any vulnerability, and that we need to assert our strength and talents to impress others. See, paranoia makes us live with an edge. Paranoia give, makes us live with like a chip on our shoulders. And the thing is this, in our dog-eat-dog dog world, you may get a lot of things in this life by living this way. When you live in paranoia, you actually might be a successful person in this world. But one thing that you'll never get in paranoia is peace. The way our text frames this is, times of refreshing will come from repentance. You will never feel refreshed. That will never come from paranoia. Because the second you get something in life, when paranoia is your posture, all of a sudden your life turns to self-protection and immediately begins to close the doors of warmth and goodness lest you lose what you just had because you feel like everyone else is trying to get it. However, metanoia, which comes from the two Greek words meta meaning above and nos meaning mind, invites us to move above the instincts of paranoia into an above mind trusting in Jesus. To turn to the above mind, to turn your life to a mind that's higher than our mind, to turn our minds to that mind, to choose the above mind, to choose trust instead of guarding, instead of paranoia. Now one describes the posture of metanoia as the image of Jesus on the cross. He is exposed and vulnerable. His arms spread wide in a gesture of embrace and his hands are open with nails through them. Repent. And that was the picture that, G that Peter is painting here. He is painting a picture of the crucified Christ. Christ on the cross dying for your sins. And what he does is he makes it very personal. He says, and you contributed to this by nailing him to the cross. You did this. Pilate was about to release Barabbas the thief and the robber. But you said, no, give us Jesus. Crucify Jesus. You did that. You crucified the Son of God. You crucified living hope. You did that. But actually, Christ did it for you because God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and he rose again for our justification and our vindication, our own righteousness, Christ died and was rose for. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't just the Jews and the Romans who ultimately crucified Jesus. We're told that it was all of us. You had a part in that as well because Christ died for your sins. We all had a part in this. And so looking at a healing story, though it's beautiful and we can see ourselves in all elements of it, what we have to do as we end, we have to see ourselves in this crowd. We have to see ourselves contributing to the crucifixion of Christ through our own sin, through our own woundedness. And we have to see Christ on the cross for us. And we have to see an invitation to metanoia to repent and to repentance simply means to turn to God to turn to him to turn to him and believe to turn to him and trust to turn to him and begin to shed all the armor that we walk in with 
to begin to say yes to healing, not just a bump, not a spiritual bump, but yes to complete healing, yes to restoration, yes to wholeness, yes to God who died on a cross for us that we could have refreshing. And that's what I want to, as we close, pray that happens here, that refreshing would come from the presence of God. The thing that we spend thousands of dollars a year on by going to therapy and massages and vacations, we want refreshing. And sometimes it works for a little bit, but it hardly ever reaches the level of our soul. Christ is promising us refreshment for our souls. That is what he's after. I love that they put that there so that times of refreshing may come. So where are you lame today? Where are you lame? Where in your life do you feel immobile? Where in your life do you feel stuck? Jesus can heal that. He can heal that today. I thank God for all the therapists and the doctors and the community that we have in and around, um, if we're fortunate, in and around our lives in this city. Amazing doctors, amazing therapists, amazing community. But we have to admit there are some things that those people can't do. There's things that only God can do. And I know that we live in a world where we think, no, no, money can solve this. It's paranoia. It's paranoia. And we're plagued with it. Our news cycles run on it. Social media is fueled by it. All of us are paranoid deep down. And what Christ is offering us is healing. For the places that we're stuck, the places that we're immobile, the places where we're paranoid, you today can leave walking and jumping and praising God. And I believe that. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.